in addition to that, as uh, over the course this summer, our church has been going through an interesting series entitled What the Bible Doesn't Say. And the key to this series has been going through cultural sayings that many people attribute to being God sayings, biblical sayings, but really aren't. And we didn't do this simply for trivia's sake or to be controversial or anything like that at all, but to simply illumine how we can oftentimes appropriate cultural truths and assume they come from God and think that that's just okay. Or even if we get busted on it and it's like, well, that's not really in the Bible. It's like, all right, maybe it's not technically in the Bible, but it should be, right? Or God would probably say something similar. And what we try to do in this series is to point out a danger, a danger that we've been trying to address since the beginning of the year. Because for those of you who track back or like looking for patterns, since the beginning of the year, our church has made this a point of emphasis, discerning truth, how to recognize and hear and discern God's voice in the midst of all the noise. And this series in particular has just been saying, you know what, we can't just appropriate cultural truths and say they come from God, because when we do that, what we're saying is we're giving man's words God's authority and God's power. And that is a place we should never go. Whenever we give man or woman's words or people's words God's authority and power, that's a dangerous thing to do. And it inevitably has great consequences. And so that's what we've been going through over the course of this summer, a series entitled What the Bible Doesn't Say. And we're going to actually wrap up that series this morning, interestingly enough, with a saying that none of you probably use. It's a bit of an old-fashioned saying. I'll go through in a little bit where it comes from. But basically the saying is cleanliness is next to godliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. So one final thing before we dive in over the course of this series, one of the things we do as a church that might be a bit unique is we have this time we call Awaken Q&A, and we don't have it with every one of our series, but what it is with this one, and what that means is during the course of the teaching, if there are any questions or comments or thoughts that you might have, feel free to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. And uh, I'll make it a point to tackle as many of those as I can at the end of our time. So if you forget what that is, that's okay. It is literally on every single slide that you'll see after the title page. So with that, let us dive in. Cleanliness is next to godliness. So let's start with what this phrase is supposed to mean, the idea behind this phrase, because again, it's not one that we typically use today. And the idea is that being physically clean is a godly attribute. And that idea actually isn't a new one. It's actually been a part of culture, a part of faith for thousands of years, uh, most likely beginning in the second century under a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi named Phineas Ben-Jer. And this famous teacher, this famous rabbi, uh, put together what, he, uh, what ended up being called a ladder of holiness, which is represented by having different traits that you build upon progressively so that you might become more holy. 
And the first step is simply reading the scriptures. And then it goes from there to building the habit of diligence. And then from diligence to guiltlessness and so on and so forth. And one of the central ideas somewhere in the middle of this ladder of holiness is this idea that purity leads to holiness. That's how it's written in Hebrew. That's one of the ways it can be translated. Purity leads to holiness. Another way that translation works from Hebrew to English is cleanliness is next to godliness. In 1872, John Wesley also famously appropriated and emphasized this idea in one of his sermons. Ironically, it was a sermon about how you are to dress in church and how you are to clothe yourself when worshiping God, but he repeats the same words, cleanliness is next to godliness. And from there, it kind of became popular for a little bit, uh, a saying that people just kind of said. Um, And it's not, as you understand, specifically a phrase that's found in the Bible, but for those of us who kind of read the Bible pretty faithfully, pretty consistently, and look for patterns, what we'll find is oftentimes, in particular in the Old Testament, and then drifting even into the New, there does seem to be this strange relationship between cleanliness and holiness, and we're going to unpack what that relationship looks like a bit this morning. Before we do, so I'm not a hypocrite, I just need to let you know that it is a bit ironic that I'm the one teaching about this idea of cleanliness leading to holiness. Um, I have quite sadly always been a messy person. And I think quite honestly, and I can't remember all the way back, but I think it started as an act of rebellion. Uh, Most of you don't know my mom, but my family knows my mom. And for those of you who know my mom, she is a bit um, obsessed with neatness is this being live streamed? So she won't watch. So anyway, (laughs) my mom can be just a little bit obsessed with cleanliness. And so growing up, that meant my brother and I had to be very clean as well. And it wasn't just about keeping your room clean. It's not, I mean, it was just like my mom had to have things really neat. And at some point in my life, I decided that was not what I wanted for myself anymore. And it became a point of tension between my mom and I. And again, I don't remember if it was because of rebellion, more likely it was because of laziness, but I just didn't want to be associated with this. So I went the other direction. I just became a mess. When I was in college, Um, I would do my own laundry, I would fold my laundry, and I would put my laundry on the floor. Um, It was, I just didn't want to put it in drawers. Uh, I reuse clothes, and so I'm sure others of you do this, but I'm going to be the first one in confess. I reuse jeans all the time, shorts, because I'm like, they don't get all that dirty. And I would just put it on the floor, pick it up the next day, and use it again. Occasionally, I would do it with shirts, you know, if you've been only using it half a day, you've been in air conditioning the whole time, and it smells okay. So that was kind of my lifestyle. And then my, I started dating Gisela. And uh, who is now my wife. And I didn't realize until many years later, it was after we were married, that she shared that when she saw my room for the first time, that was the first moment doubt entered into her mind about me. And she earnestly thought, can I be married to a man who is a mess like this. It also affected me when I was being ordained as pastor. One of the qualities, the qualifications of a pastor, character-wise, is that he be respectable. And more specifically, the question that was asked is, is Frank a man who is a dignified, 
orderly, disciplined, respectable life. And, you know, I'm not calling them out, but all the people close to me rated me a zero on that one. And that nearly disqualified me for being a pastor as well, which is really interesting to think that this idea of cleanliness could possibly be such a huge detraction in my life. So I'm sharing this with you just to let you know I am a bit of a scattered mess. I am not proud of it. I'm not trying to to go. I realize it's not a very attractive part of my life. And I just want you to understand that in some ways it almost cost me having my beautiful wife. That means our great kids and also possibly the opportunity to be pastoring as in this church, right? So all that being said, There is this interesting, fascinating relationship between cleanliness and godliness, and I'm not speaking to you about it from the perspective of an expert, but as a contrarian. So, to help clarify this idea about this relationship between cleanliness and godliness, and it's a relationship that most of you probably aren't expecting. And for you to get that, we're going to dive into a passage found in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 11. And this is how it begins. As Jesus was speaking in verse 37, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Now, before, don't read ahead, before we can really understand what is, going, what is happening here and what is going to happen next, we're going to need to take a step back and understand the significance of washing your hands in Jewish culture and according to Jewish law. So in the Old Testament, and even more specifically, particularly in the books of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers, God gives the nation of Israel a set of laws that deal with how God's people are to be and to remain clean. These were laws given to God's people, cleanliness laws, that were given to serve two key purposes. The first one was a practical reason. This was the community of God. It was a commu- these were community laws given to make sure that God's people understood what it was like to be sanitary, and that they were protected from the danger and illnesses that might simply come from not knowing how to have a healthy and hygienic lifestyle. Laws to deal with how you wash, how you clean, where garbage goes, where waste goes. Different cleanliness laws that were given to the nation practically to keep them uh, sanitary. The second reason was a spiritual reason. These laws were also ceremonial, a good number of them were, to be able to distinguish God's people from other nations. And so what these laws did is they instructed the people of Israel and even the priests of Israel on what it meant to be pure in the presence of the living God. So these are the two reasons, practical reasons and spiritual reasons, that God gave Israel these laws. And even a step beyond that, God ordained the priests and the leaders of the nation and gave them a responsibility to teach and train Israel in these laws. And so in Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 10, speaking, God is speaking to Aaron, who is the brother of Moses and the high priest of Israel. And he shares these words. He says, you must, that's you, Aaron, you must distinguish between what is sacred 
and what is common, between what is ceremonially unclean and what is clean. And you must teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. So that's what happens. God raises up this class of priests and leaders who help Israel discern what is sacred from what is common, to distinguish the two, and to distinguish between what is clean and what is unclean. But something interesting happens over time, but probably not all that surprising. God's people discovered that the broad laws, good as they were, that God had given through the law, didn't cover every possible situation. And of course, questions arose, right? So yes, we are to wash our hands, but for how long? Is, does the type of water matter? You know, if I wash my hands in toilet water, does that count too? You know, and on and on. So what happened is there arose other smaller laws to kind of be, bring specificity to these God laws, and they ended up being called oral laws. And these oral laws were passed down from generation to generation to generation, given to the priests and the teachers of the law. And in Jesus' day, these oral laws became known as as the traditions of the elders, or what was commonly understood as Jewish custom. And so, for to, if that's not clear, then maybe the best way to think of it is, as a country, we have a constitution. But over time, amendments have been made to that constitution, not because the original laws were bad, but because as time progressed, laws needed to change to accommodate culture. And so amendments were made. And so these oral laws, in many ways, were like amendments. They're not the original, and everybody knew they weren't the original, but they held the same type of of authority. So when Jesus sits down at this meal in this Pharisee's home without going through the customary washing of hands, this is not some small oversight. This was not a matter of Jesus saying, well, that's a nice little ritual, but I'm choosing not to go through that little optional ritual tonight as we eat. No, it is Jesus, a rabbi who knows and understands the law, intentionally rejecting a tradition, an amendment, right, that has been upheld by the teachers of the law. And again, realize it's not that Pharisee or these Pharisees of the day that came up with this ritual. It has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, some of them even as far back as in the days of Moses and Joshua. They carried weight and oftentimes authority as well. And so, needless to say, when the Pharisee sees Jesus neglecting that practice, he is surprised, he is amazed, he is puzzled, he is offended, and maybe even a bit judgmental and critical. And the reason why I say that is based on Jesus' response to him. And this is what Jesus said in reply. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. These are strong words. 
And it doesn't end there. Jesus goes on to continue to rail against the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes that were there in his presence as well. They're like woes, you know, W-O-E-S. He, he follows with six woes um, that were directed at these Pharisees and lawyers. And he calls out the Pharisees for being disobedient, full of pride, full of greed, hypocritical. And the lawyers, they're odious, they're burdensome, and also hypocritical. They've all neglected their charge to be good examples and to be kind teachers. And instead, they've used their platforms to look good and to make God's laws burdensome. They're more concerned with looking good than being good. And that's what Jesus calls them out for. Because what has somehow got lost along the way, lost in the midst of all of these traditions, this oral law, and these things that were passed down that were designed to be good, that were designed to bring clarity about God's laws, and somewhere along the way they lost the heart of God's laws. And Jesus is standing there in their midst and saying, I, as the Son of God, will not stand for that. Not from you, the ones who are supposed to be the leaders and teachers of these commands. In the book of Matthew, uh, this in another gospel, the author shares another time when Jesus teaches about this same idea. So Matthew 15, starting in verse 16, he shares, uh, don't you understand yet, Jesus asked? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer or the toilet for us, right? But these words that come from your heart that's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. So Jesus is saying, stop focusing on what is on the outside and start cleaning up what is on the inside. Because what is on the outside is limited. Nothing that comes into you from the outside has the ability to corrupt your inside, at least not the important stuff, your soul, your character, the spirit of God in you. But the stuff on the inside, that is what needs to be cleansed because that is what drives everything that happens on the outside. If your inside is clean, then clean stuff is typically going to be what flows out of you. But if your inside is unclean, then what typically will come out of you is unclean stuff. Cleanliness is next to godliness. So, you know what has been really interesting is that there have been a number of research studies that have taken place over the course of the past 10 to 15 years that have tested this idea. Two researchers in particular have set out to kind of, in a sense, prove this saying. Their names are uh, Chen Bozong and Katie Liljenquist. So these two are behavioral researchers who've conducted a series of experiments designed to test if there is a correlation between physical cleanliness and moral purity. And as I said, they've done a series of experiments, and I'm just going to go through a couple of them just to give you an idea of what they've done to be able to see if there is an association between physical cleanliness and moral purity. So one of the experiments is uh, they brought these students together, and they sat them down uh, individually and said, I want you to think, or even in small groups, I want you to think back to a time when you did an unethical deed. You don't have to share it. 
You don't have to tell anyone, but I want you to think back in your mind to an unethical deed that you had done and to meditate on the details of that deed for a bit. And then afterwards, after the experiment was done, they were released, and as a reward, they were given the choice of either taking a free pencil or taking a free pack of antiseptic wipes. And what they found is those who meditated on their unethical deeds almost overwhelmingly took the antiseptic wipes, whereas others who were were told to think about something else, there was no preference in terms of what they took on the way out. That was a fascinating little study. There's another experiment where participants were brought in and they were asked to take a survey. And on this survey, there were a number of social social ill issues on there. So issues like pornography or smoking or taking drugs. And And on these, there was a rating scale on how bad you felt these issues were morally. So you could test, like, pornography might only be a three on a scale of one to five. Smoking might only be a two, right? Raping someone would be a five, and so on and so forth. So you understand the survey they were being asked to take. And so they divided in two groups. In one group, they had washed their hands before they took the survey, and the other one just simply straight up took the survey. And what they found is that there was a significant difference between those who washed their hands first. And those who washed their hands first tended to uh, rate more strongly the morally questionable uh, activities in, in society. So they rated pornography higher, for example, or smoking higher than those who did not wash their hands first. It's also another interesting study. The last one is actually a related experiment by other researchers, but it played an interesting twist. And what they also did is they brought people into a room and they gave the people in this experiment the option of either telling a lie or writing one down on paper. They could choose the lie, but they were either to tell a lie to the researcher or write one down on paper. And after they left, their reward was there was this... um, shelf full of different cleaning products that they could take with them, one like these free samples, as a reward for being part of the survey. And what they found is those who told a lie were much more likely to take mouthwash with them, and those who wrote a lie were much more likely to take a bar of soap. Over and over and over again, and I could go through a number of other experiments that kind of came through, and basically you, I hope, are starting to get the idea. What these researchers have found with these studies and others like them is there is this unconscious association that we have between physical cleanliness and moral purity. We need to wrap up. And as we do so, I want to invite any of you who have any questions or comments to go ahead and text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. And in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to tackle them. But first, I want to close this out with a thought. I want to make sure it gets planted in your head. So go ahead and text your question, awakenqna at gmail.com. Do it quick. And then cleanliness is next to godliness. As we close out, Maybe you've already put this together, so if you're that way, fantastic, right? But I want to point out something that you might not have considered. Cleanliness 
is next to godliness is a statement that, as we've seen thus far, is a statement that seems to hold a good bit of truth. In the scriptures, there seems to be this idea that the two are connected. And even in our research, coming from scientists who don't come from a Christian perspective, there also seems to be this correlation between physical cleanliness and moral purity. So there is this streak of truth running through this idea that cleanliness is next to godliness. And you know why the world can tend to cling to that idea? Maybe not say those exact words, but holds on to that idea. And I think the reason is because that is as close as this world will ever get to the truth. And I say that because the reason why that statement, this idea that cleanliness is as close as we can get to godliness, the reason why I believe that's as close as this world will ever get to the truth is because the world can do nothing about cleaning the inside of you. All the world can do is clean the outside. The outside, the world has no power over what is inside, only has power over what is on the outside of the dish. And that's why cleanliness matters so much to this world. And we wouldn't necessarily use the word cleanliness today, but we would say the reason, this is the reason why the outside matters so much to the world. Why beauty and fame and accomplishment matters so much to the world, because that is as close as they can get to the truth. That is the close, as close as they can get to God. And, that, and we see that in society, right? The most beautiful among us, the most accomplished among us, the most famous among us, they are viewed by the world in some ways almost like God's. Because that's as close as the world can get. That is all the world has authority over is the outside of the cup. And in the Bible, it says that, right? 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, says this interesting, uh, casts this interesting idea that people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But God has, through Jesus, given those of us who are Christians a better hope, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes about people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to read these verses, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a caveat. These are some hard verses to read. There's some hard verses to believe. I'm not going to comment on them all that much. I'm simply saying this is what God says in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But in the next verse, Paul shares the hope we have through Christ. He says, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
For those of you in here today, if you have made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you made the decision that I will choose to be his disciple and follow him all the days of my life, what God shares is that he has done already for you what the world cannot do. He has cleaned out the inside of the cup. Jesus has cleansed us from the inside out, and he is the only one who can. The world focuses on the outside of the cup because that's all it can affect. That's all it can change. Jesus transforms us from the inside out, and that is why we have this hope. And this hope is not only of eternity and the eternity we will spend with God, but it is a hope we can live out and experience today. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so let me tackle some Q&A, if there are any questions at all about that. And if you're going to make any comments about whether or not I took a shower today, the answer is no. <laughs> I did last night, but not the night before. All right. <laughs> I know I feel this urge to confess and cleanse myself. All right. How would God tell young people today to adopt cleanliness through sacred practices? How would God tell young people today to adopt cleanliness through sacred practices? All right. First, I don't know if I can completely answer that question because I'm not going to presume to necessarily speak on God's behalf. He'd probably say something kind of funny first and then kind of give some direction, right? But um, what I would say is I would come back to the final point that we made, right? That I don't know if the issue is cleanliness in the sense of, hey, wash your hands regularly. Although if you're a parent, that's probably what you're saying. Tell my son to clean up and wash his hands regularly, right? I'm just saying there is value in that. But the key idea is not just about physical cleanliness. It has to do with the fact that um, we only have control over, in a sense, the world only has control over what's on the outside. And so the outside does matter. And uh, I do think that there is some correlation between, it's not like they're completely separated or completely unrelated. And so uh, what I would say is to tell young people, if I'm a parent telling my children, I would say, you know, it might be a good idea to bathe on occasion. So that's a good thing. So get clean. And I do think, um, here's one thing that's really fascinating. When you read the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament, it wasn't necessarily sinful to disobey one of the cleanliness. They just, but it was something that separated you from God nonetheless. Isn't that interesting? That we tend to think of sin as maybe sin is the only thing that separates us from God. And I think there's something about the idea of cleanliness that can also create some type of barrier, a smaller barrier between us and God. And so I would definitely say that, yes, we want to value and say the outside of the cup does matter. It's just in comparison to what is on the inside, the two aren't even close. So that's probably how I'd say it. More specifically, I would say, yeah, I want to teach my kids how to brush their teeth, how to wash their hands. I mean, if for no other reason than, you know, to be like, to please God, but also because there's sanitary reasons for doing so, and we want you to be healthy, which is, again, why God told the nation of Israel to obey a number of these laws as well. So, good. Hopefully I tackled that the way you intended how can I explain this to my friends who believe this? How can I explain this to my friends who believe this in a way that's shorter but makes sense and still gets the point across? 
how can I explain this to my friends who believe this in a way that's shorter, makes sense, and still gets the point across? So basically, you're telling me I talk too much. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Come on, that was like 30 minutes. I would say it in a shorter way is, is I would say, you know, God who loves us is concerned with all of our lives, both inside and out. But what God understands that most of the world does not is that what is on the inside tends to drive what's on the outside. Whereas the world tends to think if I make the outside pretty enough, because people can't see the inside, I can get away with having people think I am who I want them to think I am. And God wants better for us. That's probably how I would share it with them, that God cares about all of us. But what matters most is going to be what's on the inside. Because again, if the inside is clean, what tends to be on the outside will also tend to be clean. Whereas the world, they can't offer that same assurance and that same promise. Does that help? If you wanted me to just say that from the beginning, you could have just asked. But there it is. Do you still put your clean clothes on the floor? Yes. Yes, I do. By the side of my bed, I have my jammies. I usually put my shirts on the little counter, but my shorts or my jammies or whatever the case, they tend to be on the ground right next to me. So I literally roll out of bed, put them on, and go. Because, yes, did you want to know that I sleep in my underoos? That's fine. So I just kind of get out and put them on and go. All right, Team I. Um... I can't read this one. The Bible, oh, okay. The Bible may not say cleanliness is next to godliness, but a bald man is clean. Uh, Leviticus 13, 40. Praise the Lord! I'm not going to shave my head to be clean, but that, is, that offers you men who are balding hope, does it not? And that is what God wants you to have. So as my uh, brother-in-law shares, right? Our own uh, personal, what is it? Sun, no, solar-powered, yeah, solar-powered heads. So, amen. So let us shave our heads and be clean before the Lord. Amen. All right, a couple more and we'll wrap up. God judges people internally, but the world judges people externally. How can Christians be a good example to the world's standards? God judges people internally, but the world judges people externally. Gotcha. How can Christians be a good example according to the world standards or to the world standards? That's a great question. Um, so I want to distinguish between setting a good example, an example that brings people to God and allows people to see God in us, versus living in a way where our hearts are to please the world and to accommodate the world. Because those are not the same things, but they can feel like the same thing, Right? One is, I want to look good so the world accepts me, and so in your mind, maybe even accepts me so I can reach them. Sure, that's fantastic. And the other one says, I will live the way God has called me to live and trust that in being a light in this way, people will be drawn to. And I think there is a distinction between the two. I think we have to be very careful about why um, I mean, I don't think setting an example, a godly example, should be an end in of itself, right? It's our, our end goal should always be obedience, to please the Lord Jesus Christ first, right? To live for an audience of one. And as we do that, I believe, we believe, 
that we will be setting the type of example that will draw the world to us. And uh, that being said, I also understand that that doesn't mean we walk around dressed in sackcloth and ashes either, right? That there is this aspect of that we accommodate, we adjust our clothing, we adjust some of the things we do on the outside to the way this culture works. So unless you're me and can't do anything with this hair, and so then you just say, I said the same haircut for the rest of my life, right? That's, I'm not going to adjust or accommodate in any way, shape, or form. So um, I do think there's this aspect of saying that, yes, there is a bit of a just, uh, uh, something that we can do as Christians to, um, in a sense, not stand out as outcasts to the culture, but our motivation, I think, is going to be what's most important. And as long as that's clear, I think God is going to be very gracious with the actions that we take. Does that make sense? So make sure that the reason for how we live is first and foremost to obey Christ, to follow his example, and trust that that is the starting point for any example we set to the world. And if that's right and in place correctly, we can trust that everything else that follows or flows from that decision will be good and appropriate. All right. Um, I don't think a lack of physical cleanliness separates me from God, but I can see it separating me from community. No one wants to be around a smelly brother or sister. Amen. Wait, do you mean that for me? I'm going to find you and hug you really, really close. Last one. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Amen. Let's go ahead and close with that. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for the blessing and joy of being a part of your family, and the blessing and joy that comes from knowing that you have already given us every spiritual blessing, God, that you haven't withheld anything from your children. For those of us who are Christians, who made the decision, who are disciples of Jesus, who made the decision to put our faith and our trust in you and you only. God, you've already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I thank you for that, that you're not a stingy, miserly God, but you've given all things, every blessing already to us so we don't have to live our lives trying to strive and earn anything else. That you cleanse us from the inside out. And Lord, we pray that we would simply, as your children, as your disciples, live up to what you've already done in us. We don't need to try and strive to be anything else. We just need to simply recognize who we are in you and then live that way. And I pray, God, that you help us to have the confidence and the courage to live that way, Jesus, in a world that is broken and lives according to some insane, crazy, alternative rules. God, we love you, and we seek to please you first and foremost, and we pray that you would give us the will, the courage, the passion to do so daily, moment by moment and not to be overly influenced by the things of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.